That'd be a real interesting sermon, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, this is this is the loaves and fish. This is the multitude, and we pray God does what He always does with it, makes it feed exactly the needs that it's supposed to feed. So, recently uh, joined a book club, and. She found out, to her surprise, um, meeting with a bunch of other moms to go over a book, uh, that she was one of the uh, only moms there who was actually from Oklahoma. Most of the moms there had moved within the last year and a half, a year, nine months, six months, from another state. And we had to get together with these families recently, and I was talking with one of the dads, and he made the mistake of asking me about Oklahoma weather. And the poor guy had to sit there for 10 minutes while I talked because there is just so much to say about Oklahoma weather. And I'm sure you guys know even more jokes than I do about it, but the thing about Oklahoma weather is that it just never stays the same for very long, usually. We've been without... Am I still on? Okay, there we go. Uh, we don't have any volcanoes, praise the Lord, but we have pretty much every other kind of natural disaster except maybe hurricanes. We don't get them directly, but we sure feel their effects. And so our, our weathers in are also interesting, and weather women, too. After midnight, you know what I'm talking about. My mom stays up late just to watch Travis if it's after midnight. Is my connection bad here? Not anymore. Okay. The seasons in Oklahoma are kind of flexible, aren't they? It's hard to say, well, now we've changed over from last season to this one because the seasons go back and forth a little bit. But we get a lot of them. We don't get just warm weather the whole year or just cold weather the whole year. They're changed so much that other states send their weathermen here to train. Because if you can predict Oklahoma weather with anything close to accuracy, you should be able to predict weather probably anywhere else even easier, right? So, we have seasons of hot, seasons of cold, seasons of wet, seasons of dry. It starts to sound like Are you familiar with chapter 3, verses 1 through, I think it's 8? Time for this and a time for that. Opposites on the spectrum. A time to be soaked and a time to bake. A time to be pasty and a time to burn. <laughs> it's not in there, but the Oklahoma version could have those things, couldn't it? It's pretty thorough, actually, in its description of the kinds of things human experience has to go through. Some lives may have a little bit more of one thing at one time than another. Some lives overall might have a little bit less of this or more of that, but Pretty much everybody goes through just about everything at some point. Is there anybody in here who has not suffered? That's what I thought. 
Everybody's been made fun of. Everybody's had to go without. Everybody's lost. Everybody goes through all that stuff. Some blessings, some trials, something like that. There is, however, more to Ecclesiastes than just chapter 3, although that's probably the most well-known section. Solomon, the author, also speaks frequently about time. Anybody have struggles with time? Time during an, a particular day or even during a Maybe, I'm trying, really I am. Maybe it's just, did you lose, there we go, okay. I'm in and out. Should I just go with this guy? I bet Travis Meyer never has to do this. We don't know what goes on when the camera's off, do we? <laughs> I've been uh, struggling with aging recently. I'm not as young as I used to be. But of course, all of us can say that, right? None of us are as young as we used to be. There's a comedian who said, I don't understand why people say this when they take out photographs, but they always say, oh, this is of me when I was younger. Isn't every photograph of you when you were, I mean, you don't have photographs of you when you're older, do you? But anyway, <laughs> we spend a lot of time, money, and effort in this culture to mitigate the effects of time, don't we? From the medical journal, duh, diet and exercise linked to weight loss. Our culture is kind of obsessed with not aging. But it catches all of us, doesn't it? I saw a slogan uh, one time that said, moments that last forever. And I thought about that a minute. And I thought, I think I'm glad moments don't last forever. I can think of several moments that I wish had never happened at all. We don't really have that option with time, do we? We can't make it stay. We can't make it go. We can't speed it up. We can't slow it down. We just kind of have to take it one moment at a time. I think that's on purpose. I think there's a reason God made each moment the way it's supposed to be. They're unchangeable. Once you're in them, you're in them, and then they're gone and you can't have them back again. And you can't really tell what the next one's going to be. Hard as we try. Other places I've seen people talk about particular futures as though they're foregone conclusions. But again, we don't know, do we? Ever been surprised by anything? We don't know the future. Why does a psychic have to ask you for your name? Anyway, we pretend that this world will last. We pretend that our moments will last, that our feelings will last, that our works will last, 
but none of them will. And to some of them, we're like, that's a relief. But some of them we wish we could hang on to. People we wish we could hang on to. Everything gets destroyed by time in the end. Our world will get shaken like one of those ant farms. You ever seen those? They're shaped like a book with a stand, but they're see-through plastic. And the ants in them go crazy building all these complicated tunnels and stuff. And because it's clear through see-through plastic, you can see all the tunnels and the ants moving around. And if you need to feel nervous, that's a good way to do it because they never stop moving. And then you can shake it up, which is not very kind to the ants. What's funny is that the ants don't stop and go, oh, look at that. I'm not building that again. What do they do? They still don't stop moving. They go right back to building the whole thing again. You're like, oh, boy. Does it make you feel like giving up all this relentlessness of time, all these seasons that keep changing without asking your permission or giving you any warning whatsoever? This morning, driving to church, I had the windshield wipers on. I was like, I need my sunglasses. Because I did. Sun was out. Rain was coming down. It doesn't surprise me anymore because this is Oklahoma, right? It's enough to mix you up. It's enough to wear you out. It's enough to make you feel like giving up. Vanity, says Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All of it is chasing after the wind. And in Oklahoma, you know exactly how stupid that is. (laughs) Even the weathermen don't know where it's coming from. Mm. It can be exhausting, this life. All of the new forms to fill out, lines to wait in, organizing and understanding your past, planning for the future, learning all the new options for everything. (sighs) Solomon chased his share of winds. And he had this to say. Chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, verses 13 and 14. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. All, every. This is absolute. There is no wiggle room here. Nobody gets away with nothing. And after hearing everything, and there's a lot to hear, Solomon says it still comes down to fearing God and keeping his commands. God's still in charge, God's rules still apply. God's still involved. No matter how exhausted we get, no matter how much the seasons change or what the weather is or is trying to be, God's still in it. Always has been. So let's set aside 
the weather and the politics and the time and the ridiculousness of this world, all those temporary annoyances. Let's take some time to focus on what's important. Because it's easy to forget, right? Our brains leak. The news is loud. People don't know how to drive. We forget the important stuff, don't we? Our Savior took time away from the exhausting side of life to spend time with his Father, to be alone with him, especially before doing anything important, before choosing his disciples, for example. He prayed, and I know all of you pray. Our Savior prayed a lot, and he expected his disciples to pray often. He expected prayer to become a natural part of our daily lives. He spoke about it many times in the Gospels, and it's given a great deal of attention elsewhere as well. Our world gets inside of us without our realizing it sometimes. Even in our prayers, our worldliness can get inside. So let's take a look at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Matthew chapter 6. Verses 5 through 14 is the complete text. Jesus knew that the world each of them and us must endure is not an easy one. And in light of that, this is the prayer that he gave us. When you pray, he said, pray like this. Pray this way. This sermon will focus on the very first part, our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. My next sermon will deal with the second part of it. Because when we go to God, we go to someone who's not affected like we are. Someone who's not infected like we are, someone who's outside of the pressures that we face, who can help us with them, because he's been through them. He gets it. We're told to begin with our Father. Not my Father, not your Father. We're not alone, you see. God gave us each other. Each of us has something to share from our unique relationship with our common Father. And he must belong to us if we are to belong to him. In 1 Samuel, King Saul repeatedly referred to the Lord your God when speaking with the prophet Samuel. God did not, in Saul's mind, belong to Saul. And eventually, Saul did not belong to God either. God wants us. We need to remember how much we really do want him to. Now, the title Father covers a lot of ground. And we've all had different fathers, haven't we? Some of us are fathers. Our individual experiences with our earthly fathers color our interpretation of that title and therefore our relationship with our Heavenly Father. But if we will remember that He is the Creator 
the one who carries out good purposes, the source of life, and the only one with the right understanding of how to give life and how to treat life, that he is the Almighty, the bringer of order, justice, mercy, and forgiveness, we will be on the right track. As we walk with him, he will reveal more of himself. But he decides how and when. Remember, this is a relationship between a human and the highest being that exists. Some things are going to get lost in translation the first time. He already knows us better than we know ourselves. And we are only beginning to know him. And there is always more to know. So there's our Father in heaven. Not on earth. Not bound by earth. Not having the common weakness of decay and vulnerability that all earthly things share. He is beyond earth, outside of the limits of our comprehension, and able to take us outside of those same limits. There is a heaven. Our Father is there. Jesus is preparing a place just for you so we can be with him there. For now, the Holy Spirit is in us. Jesus helps us. And our Father sees us and works on our behalf. And because we must still pass through the separation of death to reach our Father, because the end of this earthly chapter is yet to come, we are reminded that the end will come. It will. This isn't a fairy tale. We didn't make this up. We are not abandoned or forgotten. As hard as this life is, we've all suffered something. We know this is not all we have to look forward to. Things are not always as they seem to be. Our limited ability to know reality is a poor judge of the state of anything. There is so much we cannot know. Therefore, let us turn to the one we can know and who knows us, our Heavenly Father. Now that we're facing the right direction, let's go a little further. Hallowed be thy name, or your name be kept holy. Names are held in pretty high regard in Scripture, not that any of us can pronounce all of them. God's name is held the highest, There's even an entire commandment devoted just to the use of his name. And it comes with a severe statement at the end of Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, that God will punish anyone who misuses his name. Most other commandments don't have this kind of a statement, but this one does. What about the other things that belong to God? Do we treat them with reverence too because they belong to him? God's people? Even the annoying ones? Don't point any fingers. 
God's ministers, God-appointed authorities, God's word, God's image that each human bears, God's instructions. Do we treat them with reverence and keep them as holy too? I hear the voice of conviction. Why would Jesus, in teaching his disciples to pray, spend so much time at the very beginning of the prayer focused on our relationship with the Father? Doesn't he know that we need things? Yes. He's got a place for that. It's coming up. But you notice he didn't put it first. I like to put it first. <laughs> a lot of my prayers start with, Lord, would you please? But that's not what Jesus taught his disciples to do. Start with the Father. Start with who he is. Start with what that means. Let's keep going. Because we're not to the Lord please give me part yet. The next part says thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Last time I checked. When God says something in heaven. It's done. Right? Satan's not up there. Demons aren't up there. Pretty much just the angels are up there. And they obey. This is a prayer for us to behave in the same way. Ouch. I'm not there yet. I don't know about you, but I got some work to do. Well, God has some work to do to make me that obedient. But that's what we're after. That's what we're aiming for. Thy will be done. And then after, maybe some room left for my will, huh? No. <laughs> it's a line from the movie Cars where the, uh, the owner of the shop that outfits the cars, equips them, soups them up, gets them all tricked out. He says, you don't know what you want. I know what you want. And from anyone else, we blow that off as arrogance. But when God says it, he's right. We don't know what we need as well as he does. We don't know what we want as well as he does. We don't even know who we are as well as he does. God's relationship with us is not casual. He is not a part-time job or a weekend hobby. He is everything or he is nothing. He even says he will not accept lukewarm. Remember that passage from Revelation? We must be all in or we will be all out in the end. Lest we think God harsh to be so demanding, let us remember that the only way to have any of him is to have all of him. And in such a case, nothing of our sinful nature can exist in the same place. Now, it doesn't mean we can't have him until we're perfect. 
It means that he intends to make us perfect. You stand near the water, you're going to get wet. You stand near the source of life and holiness and goodness, you can't help but become more like him. And God intends for that process to go on to its completion. Either we die to the selfish, sinful part of us that wants to be God instead of him, or we die to him and die eternally in the end. We cannot walk two roads at once. We cannot serve two masters. Jesus warned us about this. He doesn't want us to have the wrong idea about joining up, only to be disappointed later. We are repeatedly admonished in the New Testament to prepare for suffering in the flesh. Jesus repeatedly admonished us to prepare to give up everything to follow him. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Let the dead bury their own dead. Wow. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The Old Testament and New Testament are full of examples of people who were half-hearted in how they followed God. And none of those stories ended well. Death to self, crucifying the flesh, not my will but thine. Seek to enter by the narrow gate, for narrow is the way and difficult is the road that leads to life, and there are few who find it. This is serious. It almost sounds desperate. This is life and death, all packed into this decision to follow Jesus or not. This phrase in this prayer checks our motives, shines a light deep down in the darkest, most inward parts. Why are you really here? Are we in step with the Spirit? Are we fooling ourselves about anything? Are we playing with the edges of sin when we know better? Are we trying to serve a God that we make in our own image? It would probably be good for us to spend a little time thinking that through before we started asking for just whatever we thought we wanted, right? Maybe it's not really that important. Maybe that thing we're afraid of isn't so big either. Maybe that regret isn't really that big a deal. Maybe those bad things that we don't want to deal with can be overcome. And now we finally get to the part that we think we like. Give us today our bread for today. Give me, give me! Cosmic Santa! Rain it down! I've heard phrases like this in religious gatherings. But you notice what was missing from that statement. Give us today our bread for today. Jesus never said, give us enough to stockpile for an apocalypse. He never said, give us more than fill in the blank. 
He never said, give us a pile so we can enjoy having a pile. He didn't say, give me enough not to have to ask again. Or, give me what is my right. Or, give me what you've been withholding. Jesus didn't tell us to address our Father in any of these ways. But your enemy sure will. Oh my. Beware of any emotional flavorings your enemy may try to sprinkle into your relationship with your Father in prayer to cause resentment or mistrust. Those are poison and not for you. Be open to God, but be locked up tight against the enemy. It's one little phrase, so much meaning in it. Give, which means we don't have. We are vulnerable. We are in need. We lack. We run out. And we need to remember that. We have to look beyond ourselves what we absolutely must have in order to survive. We do not control most of our world. The weather, molecular forces, genetics, the responses of others, the economy, the government, the traffic, hormones, even the day of our birth and death, all of these things are beyond us to shape according to our desires. That is hard to accept. Dang it. I had ideas. <laughs> you probably do too. It says to give us. And this is the first time in the Lord's Prayer that we are directed to make a request. The previous parts of this prayer are all about setting things in order, keeping in mind who God is and our right relationship with him. Now, after all that has been settled, it is the time to make a request and not before. It seems to be so important to get in the right mindset about our relationship with God that we have to address that first before making requests. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't ever talk to God about what you need until you've gone through this big ritual and litany. That's not what I'm saying. God knows that there's times where you just, all you can do is say, Lord, help, and you, then you have to engage in something. He knows that. But if that's the only kind of prayer we are ever praying, we are missing a lot. Because prayer isn't so much about what we get physically. Prayer is mostly about our relationship with the one we're praying to. I usually shoot off a quick prayer request like I send texts to my students. But God isn't in need of my information. He knows I'm in need of him. So he makes that a priority, not the tasks I'm focused on, not the problems I worry about, and not the future that I can't figure out anyway. God's first priority for us is what he knows we most need, and that's himself. Once we have him, everything else can be fitted into its proper place at the proper time in the proper amounts. Even those things that are uncomfortable, those things that are unfair, those things that are confusing, all have their place in God's story for each of us because he's working all of them for our good. 
give us today for today. This one's probably harder for some of us than anything else about this prayer. Because we put a lot of energy into anticipating, planning, and setting in motion what will be needed for tomorrow. And the Bible advocates for being diligent, using wisdom, taking the eternal perspective, not just being in the moment. But it does not advocate for joining Martha in being upset about it all. Yes, we save some of the money God gives us, but we remember that it's his and we can't take it with us. Yes, we look down the road, we make plans for the best future that we can anticipate on the path God's put us on, but we remember that path can change. The goals can change. The needs of others can change suddenly, and all of our plans can be suddenly overhauled in an instant. We don't build on the sand of our imaginations. Now, it doesn't mean we can't enjoy sand. There's lots of fun things you can do with it. But we don't put our hope, our heart, our treasure in this world or this life or in what we can imagine. We start by putting our heart and our hope on the rock, Jesus Christ, and on his character before we ever start celebrating success in this world we pretend will last. Our bread for today is enough for today. Jesus said each day has enough worries of its own. Sometimes we think, aren't you packing some in from another day? <laughs> I'm tired of worrying. And then some days, which are so nice and pleasant and without worry, we actually invent things to worry about because we're worried that there aren't enough worries. Aren't we silly? <laughs> Things are going so well, I just know something bad's about to happen. I know God's ultimately more patient than we can ever dream of, but sometimes I wonder. All our days are written for God to read before we see any of them. We cannot keep hold of yesterday or dwell on the regrets or successes we find there. We can't see tomorrow no matter how hard we try, not even Travis Meyer. We only have today. As such, there is enough in each day to bring us fulfillment, and joy, pleasure, and pain, fear and hope, confidence and despair, depending upon how we follow our imaginations. Let us be careful to view both our unchangeable past and our unknowable future with our Savior as our guide. He knows what we need to focus on today. He knows what will be distracting. He knows what will destroy our time like a black hole, what will derail our fragile confidence. He knows exactly what is most important in each moment. So let us look to him, the true bread from heaven. There is nowhere else better to look. Give us today our bread. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Believe in me, he said. This is our bread, our nourishment, our very lives, to believe in Jesus. No matter how circumstances wear us out, 
No matter how the loud predictions of fear and despair keep clamoring, no matter how profitable we seem to be in our ventures, or how confusing our situation, or how unqualified we feel. Believe in me, Jesus said. Believe in the goodness of the Father. Believe in the power of the Spirit. Believe in the justice and the mercy of God always at work in this world and in the glorious future awaiting all who choose to believe. That is our bread, which we need every day. With all this emphasis Jesus placed on the decision to believe, he must think that maintaining such a belief will require a great deal of effort and practice and reminding and support, almost as if this decision will be opposed, even attacked as a matter of course, which, of course, it will be. We've all been through that before, I think. Everything about our flesh, our world, and our enemy is set against this belief. And it will wear you out. It will attack ferociously to steal, kill, and destroy every last shred of confidence in the character of the Almighty. Because our enemy knows that when we choose to believe and not to fear, we are like our Father. We are like our Savior. We are in step with the spirit they sent. And that scares our enemy because it defeats his only scheme, his envy-driven, passive-aggressive attempt to hurt God by hurting what God loves and what he can never be. Believe in me. Simple, not easy. But of course we have God who wants us to succeed, helping us out. This prayer, this simply arranged set of lines that I think most of us probably have memorized, reminds us of the truth, helps us connect with the Father himself, and aligns us with the Holy Spirit in right relationship, right understanding, right discerning of priorities. The enemy fears the truth. He will do so much to separate us from any reminder of it. We must, therefore, prepare for opposition to the truth and plan to persevere by his strength. His path for us leads only to heaven. How could it not? That's where he is. All his work in our lives is designed for us to get there. In step with his spirit, in step with each other as part of his rescue plan for a hijacked world. And the prayer he taught us to pray helps us to do just that, to stay focused on what's most important. More next time.